Pop Culture Affidavit, Episode 74. Well, everyone else is doing it. Everybody's doing the fish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Hello and welcome to episode 74 of Pop Culture Affidavit, the podcast that covers everything random in the world of popular culture, which is brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. I'm your host, Tom Panneries, and what I do for a living is teach high school English, which rarely, if ever, intersects with this podcast. Although this time around, well, it's one of those rare, kind of, sort of, occasions where it does, because... Uh, well, I won't be talking about work, I won't be talking about literature, I have a whole other podcast for that, and if you want to listen to me talk about literature with um, a very interesting co-host, you can go check out Required Reading with Tom and Stella. But, um, work did inspire this episode's subject. Anyone listening to this who has a kid in school, or happens to be a teacher, will completely understand what I mean when I say, fidget spinners. For the uninitiated, these are small gadgets that kind of look like ninja stars, and they have bearings in the middle so they can spin relatively frictionless. They were conceived to help with ADHD, but over the last few months have become ubiquitous, and as a result, distracting to the point where some schools have been banning them. In my classes, they've actually died out over the last few weeks, but then again, we're like right before finals anyway, so most things are dying out as it is, especially attention and attendance. But anyway, for a while, they were distracting and disruptive. I mean, on a daily basis, it seemed as if at least one or more of these things would be taken apart and the students would be chasing the bearings across the room. Uh, they would be go, the fidget spinners would go flying across the room, or they'd be bounced off the table, or students would spend time having contests over whose spinner could spin the longest. And I teach high school, so I can only imagine what issues people were having like in middle and elementary schools. I mean, there were probably fights over them and stuff. So what does that have to do with this podcast? Put simply, fidget spinners were a fad. And they are one of a number of things that were really popular over the years with both kids and parents and adults. Uh, so what I decided to do was look up seven fads that took place during my lifetime that I clearly remember or actually partook in. Um, I'm going to name them, explain them, give a little history about them, and then I'm going to do it... Well, in reverse chronological order, starting with something else that was popular this particular school year, 2016-2017, and then going all the way back 30 years to the mid-1980s. Before I do that, I actually should define what a fad is and do my best to explain a fad's average life cycle. The word is actually not short for anything. I thought it might have been, but it's not. Not in the same way that fan is derived from fanatic. And Webster's doesn't have a specific origin, like a language of origin for fad, but they do place the first known use of the word in 1867. 
The definition is basically anything that is popular for a short period of time, and the second half of that definition is the most important part. When you look at a fad, the important thing about it is that it's ephemeral. And the life cycle seems to be that a few people start doing something, using something, or wearing something. It gets copied by a wider group, and eventually it winds up being everywhere. Then, when the mass appeal gets so huge, the fad's unsustainability becomes apparent, and people start to move on, especially if the fad is no longer seen as cool. Interesting enough, there is some actual market study behind this even though a number of fads start organically, especially among teenagers. Two sources that I would recommend are Malcolm Gladwell's The Tipping Point and a Frontline episode from 2000 called The Merchants of Cool. Both of them get into this idea of how a perceived group of, quote, cool kids can actually drive purchasing decisions of popular culture. And honestly, they're great sources if you want to understand the origins of why everyone has been so concerned with millennials over the last decade or so. Honestly, it's a really fascinating subject to explore. It's probably worth its own podcast episode or a show, even since it can actually be studied academically, and people do. But I'm going to stick to the very cursor glance at fads, and I'm going to limit what I will be looking at, because while fads and, and, and fashion trends overlap, trends are a little different. To me, trends actually have a little bit more staying power than a fad. A trend can go on for quite a long time, while a fad will die out a lot more quickly. And um, I'm going to not use, like, clothing clothing uh, as a uh, as a fad in this, because I think you could do your own podcast episode or something about clothing trends and styles of various decades. There's a couple of things that could on this list that could be used as accessories, but not like a, a shirt or, or a type of shoes or something like that. So what I stuck with are more or less novelty items and activities that started mainly among teens and tweens and then spread to younger kids, eventually dying out for a few reasons. You know, like parents started getting into them or the item got too popular, the market got so flooded, the novelty was completely gone, that sort of stuff. And I'm going to do that right after this. Oh, adolescents this generation have no respect and are a far cry from my sweet Jane Eyre and her friend Helen Burns. Why, just this afternoon I was Stella. walking across and, and you know what? Men too. Well, uh, 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 Stella? men like the tragic Mr. Rochester and teachers, pa, they're all like the villainous Mr. Brocklehurst. Hey, Stella! Uh, yes, Thomas? As much as I enjoy, um, indulging your insanity, we have a promo to record. Oh dear, and what might that be? That is you and I telling everyone that we have a brand new podcast out there. It's called Required Reading with Tom and Stella. Once a month, we will take a look at a single work of literature, discuss it, analyze it, and determine if it's worth its place in the canon. Oh dear, that sounds delightful. Oh, I'm sure it will be. And you can find us on the Two True Freaks Network, which is at twotruefreaks.com. Oh yes, Required Reading with Tom and... Why is it Tom and Stella? Why can't it be Stella and Tom? rolls off the tongue better okay well that was easy so 
Required Reading with Tom and Stella at twotruefreaks.com. Thanks for contributing to the promo there. You did a great job. Oh, you are so welcome. That is the audio from a video, a YouTube clip of a guy named Mike Senator. Senatore. He's a high school st- student. And this was at a high school talent show. And in the video, he's making a big deal out of walking across stage with a ha- carrying a half-empty bottle of water. You know, just like the Aquafina or Deer Park bottle you'd get at the convenience store. Then nonchalantly flipping it so it lands right side up. And as a result... The most annoying fat of this past year was born. Bothering people to the point where even Mike, the guy from the video, felt the need to apologize for what he'd done. He's the guy who created a global phenomenon. But now he wants to apologize as the backlash against the bottle flipping craze grows. The stunt looks pretty simple, as you can see in these YouTube videos. You toss a bottle with a little water in it, and you get it to land upright. Duke University basketball player Chase Jeter showed how he's mastered the technique. Kelly Rippa had a little problem with her toss. Oh, nice shot. Here, a teacher tries it out. I found out myself, it's not as easy as it looks. Trying again. But eventually, 13th try. But some schools now want to ban the bottle flip craze because they say it's distracting students from their work. The Wall Street Journal just called bottle flipping really, really annoying. This is what started it all. Michael Senator gives the world's first ever demonstration at a talent show at his high school in Charlotte, North Carolina earlier this year. His video has been viewed more than six million times. 18-year-old Michael showed us how he perfected the technique. I like to fill it to uh, one-third levels and I flick it down my finger right here. And so I just flick it, land it, and then just, you can just keep doing it. But he has this to say to ticked off educators who see bottle flipping as yet another diversion off school. I want to apologize to all teachers. This was not my intention. This was not my intention at all to uh, get your kids distracted. I can only imagine hearing the sound of all day. I mean, that is, that is one of the most annoying sounds in the world. Out of the seven fads I have in this countdown, this is the only one inspired by a viral YouTube video, as well as the only one where you'll see a specific item didn't necessarily need to be marketed and then purchased. Yeah, yeah, bottle flipping does require the purchase of actually some sort of liquid in, in a bottle, but unlike a number of other items on this list, stores are not selling out of them. There's no actual 
resale value, I mean, like I said, Mike used a bottle of water that you can get at 7-Eleven. So the fad isn't a trick. And that's why it lasted most of the school year. It was a game to play, a challenge to undertake. You know, how many times could you do it in a row? How crazy could the bottle flipping get? Uh, there's all sorts of YouTube videos of people flipping them in like crazy ways and stuff like that. And and speaking as someone who did a lot of stupid stuff like this as a teenager, especially in college, throwing garbage out my window, beach ball fights, paper ball fights, tape ball fights, using Taco Bell sauce packets as baseballs and seeing how long we could self-hit with an aluminum bat until they splattered across the... Um, Across the wall, hydroplaning on an artificial turf field. Hey, somebody left that cherry picker unoccupied, etc., etc. I mean, I can totally understand why this is a trend or a fad. Speaking as a teacher, this got really old really quickly this year. Although it's petered out to the point where only the incredibly immature and uh, seem to be doing it. And I think that the whole skill slash game thing is, like I said, what it kept it around so long. So I can only imagine what the next crazy video from YouTube will bring. But now I'm going to get on to my second item, which actually is something that didn't need to be purchased, and that is a silly band. Silly bands are basically rubber bands. They're still around. They're basically rubber bands that are shaped like animals or objects and things. They started to become popular around 2008, 2009. It's one of these fads where kids could collect them and trade them. Furthermore, they were pretty cheap, so you could get them easily as well as accumulate them. They wound up being a distraction and an issue in classrooms, especially among younger kids. There was obviously a problem with the trading competition for some of them, and, you know, little kids can get when they see something someone else has and they want it. Plus, there were issues with students wrapping too many bands in their arms and cutting off their circulation, as well as the return of this old urban legend, which was uh, that teenagers were using them for sex. No, really. Right around this time, things were going around social media that different colored silly bands and jelly bracelets, which were also pretty big at the time, especially among older kids, were being used as codes for teenagers who were wanting or willing to perform various sex acts. Uh, this The post that went around as follows, and I grabbed this off of uh, Snopes.com, so I'll read it. So the original um, post would read like this. Sex bracelets are back, and kids are using them without their parents know what they're doing. Jelly bracelet fashion accessories have been around since the 80s, but instead of a fashion statement, they may be making a statement about your kid's sex life. These bendable pieces of colored rubber have become a sexual code to many teens. Here's a common breakdown. Yellow equals hugging. Purple equals kissing. Red equals lap dance. Blue equals oral sex. Black equals intercourse. In a game called Snap, if a boy breaks a jelly bracelet off a girl's wrist, he gets a sexual coupon for that act. It's become such a problem in some middle schools in Florida that districts started banning the bracelets. If your daughter is wearing one of these bracelets, it may be cause for concern. Now, uh, Snopes says this, Origins, when is the fashion accessory popular among children more than a harmless fad? 
And as the question has been posited across the United States from time to time, there's rumors about sex bracelets spread from news market to news market. According to the Whispers, Color for Jelly bracelets, um, as she goes into them and says, the bands initially acquired tutorial cachet in the 80s when Madonna was seen sporting them, but fashion as it ebbs and flows. In the late 90s, bracelets came back into vogue and they've gained attention and status in the 2000s as everything 80s has become cool again and new pop stars like Avril Lavigne and Pink are seen wearing these baubles. Recent years have seen several occurrences of administrators in elementary and middle schools banning or warning against the jelly bracelets by students. In October 2003, the Alachua Elementary School in Florida banned children from wearing the Skylish accents in response to rumors of the Bijou's conveying sexual meanings. Kids in that school were referring to them as sex bracelets, and even pupils as young as those at the grade 3 level were making inappropriate sexual references about them. The bracelets were managed from Malabar Middle School in Mansfield, Ohio. Students at that institution said they used the gimcracks for only innocent fun, but their principal chose to inveigh against this popular form of jewelry. I'm, not, I'm trying to promote good character here at the school, so I simply am asking the students not to wear the jelly bracelets and not wear them to school anymore said Joanne Hipshire, the principal of the school. The colorful baubles were likewise made verboten in Fort McCoy, a kindergarten to grade 8 school in Marion County, Florida. In September 2009, the principal at Angevine Middle School in Lafayette, Colorado, sent an email warning to parents about jelly bracelets because school staff members had picked up on conversations students were having about the bracelets and the subject was becoming a classroom distraction, even though there had been no reports of students actually engaging in the snap game. Officially, the school has taken the stance to not because acts signified by various colors are being carried out, but protect children from premature sexualization. So basically... It says, nothing in these stories we pawed through indicates girls are actually using these fashion items to declare willingness to engage in various sex acts or that boys are breaking girls' bracelets in the belief that doing so grants them a right to claim what they think has been advertised. Rather, the bannings are an attempt to unring a bell to return children to a time they weren't so focused on sex. She talks about the theme of Barbara Mickelson, um, who, who wrote this, talks about the theme of you know, young people in this over-sexualization, some of the, some of the other things like beer tabs. Um, if you break the top off a can, if you get to get, if you manage to get the top off with breaking the, without breaking the ring, it was worth a kiss. Uh, if you could tear it off such that the lid folds down when you open the can, comes with it, you get a blowjob or a lay or something. I managed to tear the entire top off. Very difficult, but not impossible. And, you get a lot of sex, you know, it's just um, those sorts of things. I do remember the pull top thing because it, we used to, it used to almost be a joke, like nobody actually expected to get kissed, but, you know, you could use it to flirt with somebody. But for the most part, uh, she says, just as, a, as an update, since we published our original article in 2003, we've heard some hundreds of readers on this topic. The adults who write almost always say their kids are never going to wear those bracelets again. On the other hand, almost without exception, the middle and high school kids from all across the U.S. expressed shock that adults would think they were actually obeying this code and disappointment that their elders failed to understand the bracelets are no more than a cool fashion accessory that has attracted a silly rumor. Yes, many kids have heard the rumor before the media threw it at them, and many hadn't. But even those exposed to this snippet of lore in the wild, for example, those who heard it from their friends as an item of schoolyard lore rather than gleaned it from headlines, received it as nothing as more than a giddy everybody-knows fact right up there with the old bubble-yum-contained-spider-eggs rumor. The mechanics of that activity alone 
might well rule it out. As many of our correspondents have noted, it would take a mighty force to break a jelly bracelet. Those circlets are tough. The greatest concern over sex bracelets appears not to be that anyone is going to engage in real redeeming, but that children far too young to be entertained such thoughts are being exposed to them. One way the pull tab and beer label beliefs differ from the sex bracelets is that the age of the participants. The rumor of 30 years ago was circulated in high schools mainly. Today's version is moving through grade schools and middle schools. And uh, yeah, so that was that was part of the thing with the jelly bracelets. And I think it also got applied to silly bands here and there. But the silly bands, like I said, really were these little, they really were a little more marketed to little kids. But I saw a lot of kids with them and they were different shapes. Like you could get one in the base ball shapes and stuff and they're they're so ubiquitous at this point they're still sold that like for a while my son would get like a pack of them at like a kid's birthday party or from like the, the dentist because the dentist doesn't give out candy as a treat for going and so they still kick around but it, it's one of those things that and i think um you'll see this in, in many cases where it might start with say say like a high school or a middle school cool crowd and it filters down and really the younger it goes sometimes and you see this with fashion trends too the younger it goes sometimes uh the more unpopular actually becomes among the kids who really started it and by the time it reaches either both ends of the sort of age spectrum like the really old older people and the younger people are really into it it's worn out it's welcome and it's novelty already so and honestly the silly bands are basically rubber bands that break within you know whatever and it's it's one of those annoying annoying party favors that people give out that like you know a kid gets crazy obsessed with and then you're you're stuck with um like you know what am i going to do with all these silly bands in my house type of thing because like the kids got it's not like he'll throw them in the toy box or they'll end up at a table or somewhere and like you know my, my son I'm, I'm staring at it right here has this this bin full of just random crap of like rings and um super balls and all these things he got at like birthday parties and prizes at carnival things and stuff and it's like you know just it's just one of those things that like there's just so much <laughs> and it's all random like what are you gonna do with that super ball uh play with it and it's like yeah and then it goes in the bin and it sits there and i don't think this thing has been moved in two years so so there you go but moving on, I do want to um, head back a little bit into uh, an era that uh, predates my kid and, and actually puts me in college, which was the late 90s. And this is a toy that was created by uh, Aki Maita or Meita and my Miata. No, it's not Miata. Maeda, whatever. M-A-I-T-A. It's called Tamagotchi. Well, if it isn't Tamagotchi, her new favorite pet. Yes. So what's that make me? Fish sticks? Oh, are you hungry? Oh, no, 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 no. By all means, feed it. Play to your heart's content. Look, Goldie. I took good care of her, and she changed again. Change? How about changing some water here? <laughs> hey, the boss is here. So Tamagotchi can pause. I can pause, too. Want to see that again? Tamagotchi, the original virtual reality pet. Your care determines the pets you get from Bandai. And uh, some of you guys are nodding like, oh, yeah, these things. Yeah, these were keychain sized devices with pixelated images of pets 
And if you own one, you were essentially its owner or parent. And you fed it, you took care of it. And if you didn't, it could die within a half a day or something. Tiger Electronics actually had a version out called Gigapets. And much like our trendy apps of today, does anybody remember Flappy Bird? Yeah, yeah. Um, This became like the biggest preoccupation of the time. The school banned them from being a distraction yet again. Uh, Parents got concerned because of the way that they thought that the pet's ability to die and then reset so you could just start playing with it again made death seem trivial. And a lot of what like was said in the in the selection I read from Snopes on silly bands applies here. It's one of those times where I, I read that and I have to wonder if like the dumb person in the room when you see that argument is like the kid or the parents. I mean, every so often it seems like something like this comes along, and parents worry that it sends the wrong message about something, either about sex or death or violence or some other sort of behavior. And I have to wonder if those who are concerned are not just not willing enough to give the kids the benefit of the doubt. Like, kids can act stupid. Trust me, I'm around them every day. But they're not that stupid. And with things like this, you have to wonder if they're actually parents are actually talking to their kids instead of talking over their kid. Not that I want to give parenting advice, but sometimes it seems like these things are quite ridiculous. And honestly, like, Tamagotchi, a couple of my friends in college had them for a while, and the novelty again, like every fad, it wore after after a while. Um, and they stopped carrying them around or the batteries died or whatever, or they got just too like, you know, why do I really care about this? I have a paper to write type of thing. Cause they were friends in college. I mean, my sister might've had one. I don't remember, but you know, what's the difference between caring for a, a gigapet or digipet or Tomagotchi and watching yourself die and come back to life 50 million times in a video game, you know, like I, this is basically what these things are. They're just a kind of a handheld portable video game. And, you know, I mean, I know that there's no way I can magically press up, up, down, down, left, right, left, right, PA, start. And all of a sudden, like I have 30 lives in life. I'm pretty sure the universe does not work that way. Although now I want to go on a mad Indiana Jones-like quest or some temple in, like, East Asia or something where, like, I will walk in there and there will be a Nintendo D-pad with the buttons and I'll do it and that'll happen. But then it'll probably be, like, the last crusade where... I can't move beyond the seal, and there's an old knight guy, and Nazis are after me. At any rate, you have something that's like crazy fad-like, and in this case, you actually have two companies that are competing with each other for the attention of the market that's going for this. Um, and they're still around, apparently. like It's like kind of this cult thing. There are people in the United States who are really into them who are annoyed that the majority of Tamagotchi are actually sold only in Japan. But they really did. They, they died out in the 1990s and, and, and never really made a comeback. I'd be surprised if they didn't get bigger at some point over the next... Uh, you know, in the near future, especially considering how good some of the apps that we have are. The way that you had stuff like, I don't know, the Kardashian app. 
and stuff like that over over the last few years. But uh, but yeah, so Tamagotchi uh, were your were your little keychain pet, um, and it wasn't the only pet that was kept in the '90s because the next item on my list probably is the, one of the most recognizable fads of the late '90s, and uh, that are Beanie Babies. Now, God, these things. You ever want to see adults go after a Happy Meal toy? Make Beanie Babies, like something like Beanie Babies. I mean, these are, if, if you're unfamiliar with what Beanie Babies were, uh, or are, I think they're still kind of kicking around here and there. Uh, they're small stuffed animals produced by the Thai company from night and and mainly from 1995 to 1999. They were they were they they stopped making them in in the late 90s in about 99 2000, and then I think they brought them back at some point. And they were mostly sold in gift shops and like Hallmark stores. Um, I remember the Hallmark store was like the central place for a Beanie Baby to buy Beanie Babies. And when the, at the height of the Beanie Baby craze in the, in about ninety eight or so, you'd have like we have Beanie Babies signs or we're getting them in and like all these sort of like you drive by the stationery store or the Hallmark or whatever, and it was like huge letters that get you to stop. That it got a lot of foot tra- traffic in there. Anyway. When they came out in 95, they actually didn't sell very well. In fact, I think the, the, the company didn't produce very many. But sometime around 1997, they became the hot collectible of the moment. To the point where people were paying a premium for some of the more rare Beanie Babies. And there were price guides published. Uh, not only that, but you could buy like a little plastic case for the heart tag. Because each... Um, each of the Beanie Babies, it was a little small stuffed animal and had a tag, you know, like with the barcode on it. And it, and it was just like a like any other stuffed animal, a lot of stuffed animals. You could, if, if the tag folded in like a card. If you opened it up, it, it told you, I think, the name of the, of the Beanie Baby with a little bit of information about it. And the tag was shaped like a heart and it had the logo of the company, Ty, T-Y. Um, well, you could buy heart-shaped, hard plastic things to keep the label in. Because the value of the Beanie Baby depended on whether or not you had the tag and the tag was in good shape. Um, So nobody took the tags off their Beanie Babies. It was the same type of plastic casing that you would get for like a really valuable, like like one of your, one of your like, I really, this baseball card means a lot to me, baseball cards. Like I have Keith, I only have like maybe a handful of baseball cards left. And um, one of them is Keith Hernandez's rookie card from 1975, and I have it one of those hard plastic things. Not like the things that you bolt into like a display thing, but like the, you know, you had the the thin mylar bags, kind of like comic bags, but then you have the th- the the harder plastic um, ones. That's what I have it in. Anyway, these were what those Beanie Baby things were. You know, it's it was almost like slabbing a comic book in a way. Uh, but anyway, my sister, my sister actually had a pretty big collection of these at one point, and even she even had the price guide. I remember flipping through it, and I remember um, the really valuable ones uh, of the Beanie Babies uh, were the more rare ones. So you had the first series that came out about ninety five, ninety six. Those were pretty rare because they didn't sell a lot of them. They didn't make a lot of them, so they were hard to come by. And then you had stuff where it was like irregularities, like a ladybug beanie baby but it had to have a specific number of spots or you had a unicorn but the unicorns 
horn wasn't iridescent or it wasn't white. It was like brown, and that was more valuable. Uh, and then there was some of the specialty ones, and the most famous and most popular specialty one was a bear, and a lot of the specialty commemorative ones were bears, and it was a purple bear named Princess that was issued in a limited capacity after the death of Princess Diana. That one is, I believe, still worth money. There are a few that are still worth money, but for the most part, um, you had what happened with comics and baseball cards in the earlier part of the 90s where the market got flooded and basically it collapsed and stuff. And the, the thing about it, though, was interesting was that it was adults went nuts. I mean, kids went nuts for these things, too, because, like, you know, kids love stuffed animals. So if you can collect a bunch of stuffed animals, the kids are going to be really into it. But adults went absolutely crazy for these. Like, And uh, I know I opened up a cra- I opened with a crack about Happy Meals, but that's true. McDonald's sold Happy Meals with Beanie Babies in them. First I got Pinky, then I got Pinky. I got Pinky and Patty in the same week. What, Vanessa catch something? Teeny Beanie baby items. Now at McDonald's, your kids can get Teeny Beanie Babies and a Happy Meal. Real Thai Beanie Babies in a mini size. To toss, tuck, or just plain love. One's in each $1.99 hamburger Happy Meal you buy your kids. This uh, Teeny Beanie baby items. will she outgrow it? Not necessarily. <laughs> McDonald's also has extra value meals starting at $2.99. After all, we care about big kids, too. And uh, my wife actually has, still in its card, Britannia. I think they were all named after countries. The brown bear with the Union Jack flag on it. It's called Britannia, Britannia. And people would line up at the drive through McDonald's. Like, they'd also almost try to just get the toy without buying the food, too. And and honestly, it, it's, it, doesn't, it doesn't strike me as weird. I mean, as somebody who collects comics and knows people in the collectibles hobby and market for, like, toys and things like that, Star Wars toys and stuff like that, I understand this sort of zeal to search out that, like, perfect unicorn with the brown horns. So you, and, but so I, so I can't laugh at people who are Beanie Baby collectors. Because um, it's one of the things that what happens when you have a collecting craze like this is it'll eventually die out. There are very few collectibles markets that are highly sustainable uh, for everything in them. You know, like, um, certain things will never drop in value in, in comics, in, in collectibles markets that have bottomed out. Older baseball cards... Mickey Mantle's rookie card, Pete Rose rookie, the, that Honus Wagner card, Babe Ruth's rookies, like Babe Ruth cards and things like that of old, old vintage that are still very rare. I don't think the value on those is going really anywhere. They might dip, it might go up, but if you have a 50, I think it's a 54 Mantle and it's a good condition and it's authentic, like it's not a, it's not a reprint, it's not a, it's not a fake. You're sitting on, I think, at least five figures, four maybe five figures. That that's a pretty good that's a pretty good thing to hold on to. In the same way that there are certain comics from the fifties, sixties, forties that 
despite what happens in the comic book back issue market, are always going to be valuable. And certain toys that, because of their rarity, are. And, and Beanie Babies were kind of like this. There are still some of them that are, you know, that are like that. But just like any other collectible, there comes a point where it becomes trendy, it becomes a fad, and everybody thinks they can make money off of it. Producers flood the market to make their money right up front. And it dilutes everything and everything becomes completely worthless because the supply outpaces the demand and it's essentially price inflation. So I'm sitting here with a bunch of Phantom Menace toys that were opened a few years ago by Brett because honestly, I looked them up on eBay and the Darth Maul figure that I bought in 1999 and just kept in the card is still worth the $4.99 I paid for it. So guess what? Here you go. Have fun with the action figure. And I mean, God, comics fans like me have made fun of 90s comics so much in the past thinking that, you know, we were all going to pay our kids' way to Harvard with that copy of Turok Dinosaur Hunter number one, and it never happened. And that's basically what the what the joke about Beanie Babies collectors are. Like, you know, people people like to poke fun at them and say, ha ha, you thought you were going to get a ton of money down the road because you bought a turtle Beanie Baby or something. And I can't really poke fun because I laugh at myself at the way the mentality is. You get wrapped up in the collector's mentality. And What's interesting, and this is very honest, and thinking about the late 90s, it's like this is from a time when the economy was good and consumerism was nuts. And so a collectibles phase like this makes total sense in an environment like that. People had the money to blow on Beanie Babies back in the late 90s. Had this happened in 2009, it would have been interesting to watch, but 2008, 2009, you know, everything's in the complete toilet. It's it's harder for this sort of stuff to catch on. And it's just, it's just interesting to see. Um, it would be interesting to see how many of these trends rise and fall with the economy as well, especially when Beanie Babies weren't expensive per se. But they weren't cheap on the level of uh, of a uh, silly bands, you know. They 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 were a few dollars, so it's not like you were spending just a little bit of money on something that's completely useless. Such as my next item, Pogs. Milhouse, I gotta have my soul back. I'll do anything you want. Uh, well. Uh, Milhouse, give him back his soul. I've got work tomorrow. I'm really sorry. I kind of traded your soul to the guy at the comic book store. But look, I got some cool pogs. Elf pogs. Remember Elf? He's back in pog form. You traded my soul for pogs? No! Close that door, you're letting the heat out. Shut up, shut up, shut up. Yes, pogs. I never personally got into these in the 90s. I think it's because by the time that they got to be a fad, I was a little too old for them. I was still collecting comics, but the other money I was spending that I wasn't spending on comics was on stuff like CDs and my girlfriend. Uh, POGS, by the way, it's actually an acronym. It's short for Passion Fruit, Orange, and Guava, which were the caps from specific juices, juice bottles, used to play a game that was often referred to as milk caps. 
Uh, the Wikipedia page on Milk Caps has a pretty good rundown of the rules of the game, so I'm going to go ahead and read that for you. According to the Wikipedia page, the game actually originated in Maui uh, during the 20s or 30s, and it was uh, with its origins in Mango, a Japanese card game, very similar. Halikikala Dairy of Maui sold a mixed fruit drink in a glass bottle with the captain of the brand of Pog, P-O-G. So that's where, that's where it comes from. And then uh, they expanded to larger Oahu. It led to a revival of the game in 1991, and with this revival, the Pog name began to use more generically. The 90s revival is credited to Blossom Galbiso, a teacher and guidance counselor who taught at Waialua Elementary School in Oahu. In 1991, she introduced the game that she had played as a little girl to a new generation of students, soon incorporating milk caps into her fifth grade curriculum as a way of teaching math and as a nonviolent alternative to other popular schoolyard games such as Dodgeball. The game quickly spread from Oahu's North Shore, and by early 1992, Stan Pack Incorporated, the small Canadian packaging company that had been manufacturing the milk caps distributed by the dairy on Maui, the same caps that were collected by. Uh, Galbiso for a class was printing millions of milk caps every week for shipment to the Hawaiian Island chain. This game soon spread to the mainland, first surfing in California, Texas, Oregon, and Washington before spreading to the rest of the country. By 1983, the relatively obscure game of milk caps, which had almost been forgotten, was now played throughout the world. Milk caps returned to popularity when the World Pog Federation and the Canadian Games Company reintroduced them under the Pog brand name in the 90s. Fad sort and peaked in the mid 90s. Pogs were being handed out for opening bank accounts and in McDonald's Happy Meals. Uh, Skybox introduced Skycaps. Marvel added, added the product under their lines. Uh, Skycaps and Hero Caps. The game spread to by then had spread uh, by then, but the term Pog was claimed as a trademark by the World Pog Federation, while other companies claimed it was generic. There's a little bit of a fight over it. Um, it did eventually die out. Now, equipment. Milk caps generally involves two types of playing discs, milk caps and slammers. Milk caps are typically flat, circular cardboard discs, which are decorated with images on one or both sides. The other equipment used is a slammer, a heavier game piece often made of metal, rubber, or something commonly plastic, which come in various thicknesses. They are typically smaller in diameter to milk caps, and metal slammers are not allowed in some games because they are usually heavier than other materials, giving the player the first turn and an unfair advantage. Gameplay. Rules vary among players, but the game variants generally have common gameplay features. Each player has his or her own collection of milk caps and one or more slammers before the game players decide whether to play for keeps or not. For keeps implies that the players keep the milk caps they win during the game and forfeit that that have been won by other players. The game can then begin as follows. The players each contribute an equal number of milk caps to build a stack with the pieces face down, which will be used during the game. The players then take turns throwing their slammer down on the top of the stack, causing it to spring up and the milk caps to scatter. Each player keeps any milk caps that land face up after they've thrown. After each throw, the milk caps which have landed face down and then restacked for the next player. When no milk caps remain in the stack, the player with the most pogs is the winner. 
So yeah, so that's that's how Pogs are played. I actually never knew that. It's an interesting little game, and I can so it kind of strikes me as um, and like I said, it's it it strikes me as something like um, like Jacks or something like that. Like where you know where there's just this this which which also is a very very old game, and, and this came at a time by the way where there were a number of games that involved buying something like buying cards or collectibles that were becoming popular. And while they all didn't come out simultaneously, the early to mid-90s is when you did have games like Pokemon and Magic the Gathering. Uh, those have both stayed pretty popular, uh, or they become gamer mainstays. Pogs came and went incredibly quickly, although I do remember like a Pog store opening up in my hometown like for like a split second. Where were the railroad tracks? Um, and they're like having Pog tournaments and stuff. I, I don't think that place stayed open for very long, to be honest with you, because I think that the, the fad died out. Or I went to college, and it was just something that people my age were not into. Pokemon Pokemon's all about, like, you know, battling with cards. And this is something, I, and I'm not very familiar with it. So if anybody wants to school me on Pokemon, feel free. I'm sure my kid could, even though I'm just, it's just not something that I'm, I'm really into. But you're. You're playing card games with this card game where you're you're fighting with the cards. There's also like a cartoon and video games. Pokemon's like a worldwide brand at this point. It, it's 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 Pikachu's you know been a balloon in the Macy's Day Parade. So it goes beyond this kind of playground game thing. Magic the Gathering that from what I can tell, like really hit on a very specific, like fantasy mythology fan, somebody that was already kind of the D and D forgotten realms type of person. Um, and that audience does tend to have some loyalty to it. So magic, the gathering is still kicking around. Uh, it has a very huge cult following more than anything. Uh, I do know there's like, I remember reading about this. There's like one Magic the Gathering card that's worth like an obscene amount of money because of its rarity. Uh, Stories about it pop up every once in a while because like somebody's mom threw it out years ago or something. So, um, but yeah, but with Pogs, I'm sure that maybe somebody who was a kid in the 90s still has some Pogs laying around the house. Maybe. Kind of like lost game pieces like pegs from the Game of Life or monopoly money and that sort of stuff and i guess the lesson with pogs is that if you want your fad to have staying power you need to have a certain amount of exclusivity oh and this also got parents annoyed it also got banned because they said the game encouraged gambling which once again brings up my point who's more stupid Who's more gullible? Who's not giving kids the benefit of the doubt? Blah, blah, blah. Uh, I'm going to take a quick break, and I'll be back with the last two items on my list and, uh, and to close out the episode. Stick around. Grom. I have never prayed to you before. I have no tongue for it. No one, not even you, will remember if we were good men or bad. Why we bought, why we sold on eBay. All that matters is that 50 cent Captain Kirk Migo action figure. That's what's important. Cheapness pleases you, Grom. So grab me one request. Grab me the fruit of suburbia's garage sales. 
Let me drive those dealers away from that box of records and hear the lamentations of the children as I buy their Star Wars toys for a quarter. And if you do not listen, then to hell with you! Hello, I'm Chris Honeywell, and I make my living going to garage sales and then selling the junk I find on eBay. That's right, just like those assholes on TV. You can hear a podcast all about it where I tell you about all the good junk I got, how I sold it, give you tips, gripe, bitch, and moan, and even have friends come along with me. So check it out. It's called Garage Sale Gloat, and it can only be found at 2TrueFreaks.com, which is, of course, the home of the 2 True Freaks Network. Duh. As I've gone through this list, I've noticed that there's a common element among many of the entries, and that is that they've all been, like, banned from classrooms. <laughs> because uh, they were considered distracting. And this next one is no exception, but it's also, it has the added fun of causing bodily harm, kind of like Silly Bands did. What I'm talking about here, though, is uh, we're going to back up to the late 1980s, and we're going to put on some slap bracelets. Slap bracelets were invented in the mid-80s by a high school shop teacher named... Stuart Anders, who had been uh, fiddling around with steel ribbons uh, in, his, in his dad's shop, and he realized that a very bendable metal could be made into a bracelet. He showed his invention to Philip Bart, who then gave it to U- Eugene Murtha, who was the head of the Main Street Toy Company of, of uh, Shrewsbury, Connecticut. And uh, they were branded as slap wraps. And in the New York Times article where I got most of this, even Anders knew it wouldn't last, saying that he hoped to, quote, it would be, quote, somewhere between the hula hoop and the pet rock. These things were all over my elementary and junior high school in 1989 and 1990. And while girls mostly had them, I remember a few guys wore them as well. My sister had at least a few, and they were definitely the type of thing that she would show off, even though after a while the metal slappiness and bending power would diminish, and the fabric would fray, exposing the metal inside. In fact, this actually was the major issue, aside from like the whole distracting kids in class thing. Uh, while Eugene Murtha, who had been marketing slap wraps, said that his product had received no complaints, there were at least a few cases of kids having their hands or fingers sliced open because of a slap bracelet. Murtha claimed in an article I read from the Times that these are foreign-produced knockoffs, and they were using cheaper material, and they probably were causing injury. But nonetheless, you really could seriously hurt somebody with with a slap bracelet. And uh, I remember uh, the more, well, stupid slash sadistic guys among us uh, would try to do that because they thought they were being funny. Um, By the way, according to that New York Times story, Main Street Toys sold more than a million of those things by the end of 1990. I know. I didn't have something stupid. Jeez. Anyway. Now it's time for the last item on my list. And uh, I'm going to highlight the one fad of the mid-1980s that I actually was crazy for. All these other things I kind of observed secondhand or from afar or from the annoying pers- annoyed perspective of a teacher who's just had enough of his kid's crap. But in this case, this last thing... I had these. I collected these. I went crazy for these for about, what, six months. And they were garbage pail kids.
once upon a time, or was it more recently, there was a young boy named Dodger. He was the sort of child who was always left out of things. Each day after school, Dodger works in a junk shop owned by the mysterious Captain Mancini. Which is broth and vampire's brew. Make these clothes as good as new. Dodger has never had a family or a friend he could call his own. Until now. The Garbage Pail Kid. Starring Nat Nerd. Windy Winston. Messy Tessie. Give him a chance, Tangerine. You'll like it. Ali Gator. Valerie Vomit. Lisa Gregg. Ah, I'm gonna get fired for this. Foul Phil. Nice and it opens. The Garbage Pail Kids movie. They may not be pretty, but boy, they make great friends. Starring Anthony Newley and Mackenzie Aston. The Garbage Pail Kids movie. Yes, this was a fad that became so popular that a movie was made. It was a horrible movie by all accounts. I've actually never seen it, but it was a movie nonetheless. Garbage Pail Kids are unique in that uh, they have their origins in a parody of another huge fad of the 1980s, Cabbage Patch Kids. Now, with the exception of Beanie Babies, they really didn't want to touch on the toys. Because fad toys, trendy toys, it's the same reason I didn't get into fashion fads and fashion trends beyond the kind of novelty of a slap racer or a silly band. Um, because I could do an entire episode on, like, the hot toys of the moment. Tickle Me Elmo, Furbies, Cabbage Patch Kids, you know, it's a whole other thing, um, and that, that we really, really could get into maybe some other time. Cabbage Patch Kids, I do need to mention them at least, because these, this is a toy that got so popular about 83, 84, that people literally got into fights over them in mall parking lots. I think my wife has at least one story about them, and and it was just, it was just one of those one of those things that like would make the news, and and in the name of just awesome parody, the creators of wacky packages, and I love wacky packages, they're just fun as hell. Um, they came up with a line of trading cards for tops that featured grotesque images of Cabbage Patch Kids with puntastic names like Adam Bomb and Cyclops. The front of each card was a die-cut sticker. The back of the card not only had a description of the character, but a place where you could assign a name of one of your friends to that character, at least on some of the series that I bought. The cards were drawn by John Pound, and the inventors of the cards were Mark Newgarden and Art Spiegelman. Yes, that Art Spiegelman. The same Art Spiegelman who's the author of Mouse the seminal graphic novel about the Holocaust. 
co-created Garbage Pail Kids. I find that awesome. Anyway, the cards had 15 series. Uh, that's 15. That's a lot. And, and that's actually more than I actually thought they had. Because I remember collecting them maybe during like series... Two, kind of during the end of series 2 and like mainly during series 3. I might have had a little bit of series 4. The packages of the cards weren't very expensive. Uh, in fact, I think a pack of Garbage Pail Kids cost about as much as a pack of baseball cards. And uh, like any of its trading card series, Tops numbered all the cards and created a checklist so they knew exactly which ones you had to get. Now, I dished my collection to Giannis ago. It's probably worthless because as a little kid, I like to write my friends' names on the back of the cards. I, I filled out the checklist. They got bent. They got beaten up. They were rubber banded together and tossed aside. Years later, uh, when I was briefly into baseball cards and trading cards and like thought of myself as seriously collecting these things what i would actually do is try to get doubles of the checklists so that i could keep one for the set in good condition but then have one to mark up yeah see see yeah i I know how to collect things yeah unagi the cords uh the cards were juvenile they were juvenile and gross but I was eight, nine years old. They were hilarious. They became a good way for parents to inexpensively shut kids up on shopping trips uh, or for us to spend whatever little earned money we had. I remember everyone had that third series. Like everybody in my grade had like most of that series. A number of us had a fair amount of the second series. And like I said, a few people did move on to the fourth series. I think I might have had a few at the beginning. But uh, the first series cards I remember were always a pain to find because they kind of come and gone, so they were out of print by then, and they became a playground commodity. I remember uh, chancing on a pack or two at stores like Ben Franklin, which often sold like leftovers and closeouts, kind of like Big Lots, Five Below, those sorts of stores do. Although I remember the bargain shopping at Ben Franklin being a lot more useful, a lot less like the fresh hell of going to Five Below. By the time the movie came out in 1987, my friends and I had pretty much moved on from collecting Garbage Pail Kids. I was actually collecting baseball cards for real and uh, doing my first foray into comic books, which you can hear over an origin story when I actually catch up and get episodes out in the way I should. Anyway, Garbage Pail Kids, just again, like all the other flash-in-the-pan things of my childhood, came and went, had its time, and... What's fun about doing this episode, which um, I'm looking at my time, is actually clocking in shorter than most of the more recent episodes I have, but it's been a while since I've done a solo show, and I found this to be pretty fun. I I actually had a lot of fun researching this. It's it's kind of fun to see how many of these things have Wikipedia pages, how much they appear on newscasts, uh, New York Times write-ups and stuff like that, uh, urban legends in some cases. And I I find it fun and fascinating of how the life cycle of a fad really hasn't changed since I was a kid. Even with the internet, even with YouTube and Twitter and and Snapchat and, and all these things. I mean, I've changed. I certainly find fads like bottle flipping more annoying than I would have when I was 20 years ago. 25 years ago because I think 20, 25 years ago I probably wouldn't have flipping bottles in high school but I guess the crank it's just the crankiness of adulthood I guess I don't know but overall it's it's just interesting to see how, how things catch on 
and how they do so very organically at times as opposed to say something that's specifically marketed or targeted or how things can spread i think on some level fads tie into the idea that ideas can spread and things can spread um a lot of philosophical level as well without being um without having to be officially sold to you or or even without a lot of basis in something and how we'll just kind of we'll latch on to things for i don't know whatever enjoyment there is a nostalgic game that we used to play the fun of the chase in terms of some of the collectibles that were on this list I encourage you to go on. I'm going to try to post some pictures, some links to articles, some videos, and stuff like that uh, in the show notes, the blog post for this this episode. Um, and I really do encourage you, mainly because nobody sends me email and I don't get much feedback. Um, but I encourage you to to shoot me a line, drop me a line about maybe fads and things you thought about while I was doing this that I didn't talk about. Or your experiences, like, did you have a lot of Beanie Babies? Did you actually play Pogs? Um, do you want to take me to school where it comes to Pokemon and, and Magic the Gathering or something like that? Because I'd love to hear from you guys. I'd love to hear. That one, of my, one of my favorite things about doing this podcast is that there's a part of a podcast community. And I love the back and forth of a hey, remember this type of type of thing. So, uh, so please, yeah, please email me, email me, post, share, and things like that. In fact, I do have a little bit of feedback. I'm going to save it for next episode, which is episode 75. So, in episode 75, I will have a feedback section with some Facebook comments and and some some tweets and, and Facebook messages and stuff like that about some past episode uh, episodes, but. The main topic being that it's seventy five episode seventy five. It's going to come out in June, late June, which is being right around my fortieth birthday. I think I'm going to flash back forty years to nineteen seventy seven, and I'm going to look at a movie from nineteen seventy seven that was a pop culture phenomenon. I wonder what it could be. Until then, thanks for listening. Take care. Everybody does it Come on Maybe you should too Come on Thanks for listening to Pop Culture Affidavit. All clips and media are copyright their respective copyright holders and are used for review at illustrative purposes only, so no infringement is intended. Feedback can be sent via email to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com. You can also follow the podcast on Facebook at facebook.com slash popcultureaffidavit. For more content, including show notes, media, and essays, be sure to check out the blog, which can be found at popcultureaffidavit.com. This podcast is a proud part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which is a division of the Demanza Corps of Milan, Italy. You can support all the Two True Freaks podcasts by using the Amazon.com link at twotruefreaks.com whenever you shop. Thank you for listening to Pop Culture Affidavit, and come back next time for more pop culture randomness.